the arts have a magical way of breaking us, of chipping away the hardened outer shell we all wear and softening us by taking us, sometimes beyond our conscious wish, to that deeper inner place of feeling. In my experience, it's when we allow ourselves to truly feel that we can begin to heal. A sentiment strongly echoed in the art and commentary of Irfan Deliri. An internationally toured spoken word artist with over 15 years experience working in community development and social change projects, Irfan has a master's in communication for social change and is, of course, gifted with a voice that was made for doing just that. I was eager to speak with Irfan about his views on what's happening in the world around us. What drives him to do what he does with such relentless, some would say, dog-headed tenacity. And what he thinks is truly needed for wide-sweeping, observable change to occur. I forgot, however, that with Irfan, the conversation will always turn to the deeper things that really drive him and us all. No, not at all awkward. <laughs> it's funny, there's that moment when you press the button, right, no matter how seasoned. Um, so, um, today I'm here with Irfan Deliri, a very dear friend of mine. And so thank you, first up, for your time, for driving all the way from Melbourne through the night to be here and talk with me for Yoke Magazine podcast. Um, you've actually got a very interesting background story. You yourself were born in India, but your parents were Baha'i refugees from Iran. And then you grew up in Queensland, and I know you essentially began following your parents on the path of community development, and then the spoken word part of your journey actually sort of launched much later in life compared to the other stuff. And so what I'm actually interested in is, you know, where, where is the artist and the spoken word poet in you? Where did that come from? You know, where, where were the arts and culture, um, I guess, in your family? What grew you up? And, yeah, what shaped you as an artist? Um, I guess some would say that uh, poetry is in um, the DNA of most Persians, and um, that may or may not be true. I actually don't uh, read very much Persian poetry, and I didn't know much about the heritage either. Um, but I did grow up in a family of artists. Um, my father is a fine artist. He's a painter, a sculptor, um, theatre producer and actor. Um, his sisters were also artists as well. So it was something we grew up with um, in our lives. Dad would often, you know, um, confine himself to the garage and paint for hours on end. So um, it wasn't strange that I had an interest in the creative arts. Um, as far as writing is concerned, um, I never really considered myself um, uh, a writer, I never really took it seriously. Um, in high school I did physics and chemistry and, and mathematics um, and I remember my English teacher in high school asking me what I'm going to do when I leave um, and I said I'm going to study engineering and she gasped and she actually said very clearly that if you do anything but write you'll be a very unhappy man, which I just scoffed at and ignored and it was only maybe ten years later that I remembered those words. Don't you hate it when the adults are right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was very, very right. Um, long before I had any idea what she was talking about. Yeah. So then, you know, with the arts and then later with social activism being a big part of what you do, obviously, um, you know, through your parents' work, that influenced you a lot onto the path that you're on now. You know, 
<laughs> it's interesting you mentioning engineering because you actually did something to do with engineering at some point. What was that? Yes, that's right. I studied um, infomechatronic engineering for a few years at, UK, uh, at QUT in Brisbane. Okay, infomechatronics, yes. meaning? IT, mechanical and electronic engineering in one godforsaken course. And were you a very unhappy man? I was. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> so we got you as the artist then. Um, but yeah, you know, considering that what you do now with your life is arts and social activism mixed, do you feel that you have, um, of those two, perhaps a first love? Like, what's driving you now? Let's do. Between arts and social activism, like, what sort of came first? Because, you know, in your career path, you were definitely involved in the community development yeah. practically long before the, the arts career, as far as I'm aware. Totally. Yeah, I think definitely the social change and community development is first and foremost. Um, and the arts, for me, is just a tool um, to be used for that purpose. For other people, you know, art for the sake of art is good enough. Um, for me, I, only, I, mean, I see art as a, as a tool. It either indoctrinates or it inspires or it heals or it um, opens conversations that the public isn't able to have in other ways. Um, whether we look at the anti-apartheid movement with, uh, and, and the music or the poetry of the civil rights movement or um, many of the other social change movements throughout history, art has somehow been involved with that, whether it's been the comedians of, of modern, uh, modern day times right now. Um, I think art allows us to um, have conversations that we can't have in other ways, and that's the power that I see in it. Art for the sake of art um, is not something that has really interested me. That's interesting. So I guess you're, that would, sorry, it would almost make sense as to why it came in a bit later. You just said, okay, right now I've got this thing. I can write and I'm just going to use it to do what I need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Um, it was my um, time at UQ when I went back to do my master's in communication for social change, um, where I actually realized how powerful a tool art had actually been in creating social change and giving momentum to social change movements. Um, and that's when I, without realizing, started writing more frequently, just because I was at uni again. Um, and that ended up becoming poetry, it ended up becoming slightly better poetry <laughs> and then I finally managed to be able to call myself a spoken word artist and that's when it all came together for me. You've spoken to me previously about some of the highlights of your career as an artist. Do you want to just share those with us again? Um, you were, you were um, supporting someone over I think in the UK and also perhaps at TED's um, I, I call it the golden age, <laughs> the golden age poem, because you described the world as we would all love it to be. And I think one of my favourite lines from it actually is, I think nothing we say would be said without the word love in between. I love you, or I have love for you, or um, I am love and so are you. And just the whole scene that you paint there, for me, it's, I've never quite heard someone um, capture a scene of a future world that I would want to live in as much. I've heard it in, I guess, spiritual texts, but not um, in poetry. And I think just going back to that concept of art as a tool, for me it's so powerful because it expresses the psyche, it brings out what is in the in inside people's minds and hearts and it makes makes visible and reveals that stuff. So the fact that, you know, someone was able to reveal that image for others to grab hold of and digest within themselves. I think that was beautiful. So, so thank you for that one. 
<laughs> big fan. But um, then just going back to your question, just to share some of the joys and highlights of your spoken word career, perhaps. Um, yeah, I guess it was a pretty, um, yeah, pretty um, interesting career. I, I didn't even know that such a thing existed um, when I was writing poetry to begin with. And um, I suddenly heard of this thing called spoken word and people actually go to evenings and they share poetry on a, you know, with a mic and some people even get paid for it and it was quite s surreal and absurd to me. So I ended up going to spoke, uh, a few open mic nights and sharing some terrible poetry and um, you know, not even so much as um, being able to perform without reading off the page. And I went from that to um, publishing my first book and going on an overseas spoken word tour in the UK within, I think, 18 months or something like that. It was pretty, pretty swift. Um, so yeah, I, I spoke at Parliament House in Canberra, I spoke at TEDx in Byron Bay, um, I performed at um, Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London, which was um, definitely a highlight. Um, so yeah, in, th in that brief period, there was definitely some um, pretty big highlights for me. Um, yeah. It sounds like the kind of magic that happens when something's supposed to happen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like it's fantastic. Um, so I think the next question kind of links into that idea, uh, again, of art as tool as, sorry, art as a tool for social change and activism. You know, what is it, you've seen a lot on your own journey. You know, you've seen people come and go, people who have a certain integrity about their own journey with social change or not, people who are inspired by the arts but perhaps use it for other means. Um, what is it that actually inspires and motivates you about social change and activism? So, like, we're going to leave the artist behind momentarily, or kind of little, little tendrils of artist there, and just kind of really go into the activist that you really are. And maybe even for yourself and for our listeners, defining what you understand by the mean, like the, by the word activist in this sense. Um, yeah, I, I, there was a lot in that. Sorry. <laughs> I could I could speak on what is it that motivates me um, for hours on end and. Um, we probably don't have that kind of time um, and, and why I do it and what could potentially be the key factor in influencing others to do it um, personally for me so let me rephrase slightly what inspires you about it like what's that if you could could capture it in a single sentence like what's driving you what's driving me um, it's difficult to express in a single phrase I, I the truth is I don't see anything else worth doing um, I look around at society and at the uh, destructive behaviors and patterns we've created. I look at things like, you know, careers or the accumulation of wealth or, you know, being distracted by media entertainment. And I just look around myself and I don't find anything that interests me enough uh, to, to move my attention away from trying to create positive social change. Um, uh, a good friend of mine once said um, when I was having a really dark moment, he says, look, don't worry too much about the state of the world. Just try and make the space in your immediate environment a little bit less shit for others. Um, so like, if I can do that, then I can't think of anything better than I'd rather be doing with my time. Um, it is um, a pretty um, you know, hard uh, existence to go through for a lot of people in the world. And I think those of us who have the privilege to be able to um, you know, even consider such things as, oh, should I work in the environment, in the area of social change, or should I go into, um, you know, a career as a lawyer or whatever it is. Like, those of us who have that sort of privilege, I think, also have a responsibility to, to use whatever skills and talents we have um, to make the world a little bit less shit for others. Um, 
fact of the matter is um, a vast majority of human beings and the natural environment and the animals on, the, on this planet are in a space of discomfort, if not trauma. Um, and if we can alleviate that in any way, shape or form, whether it be through um, early childhood education, whether it be through mental health support, whether it be through advocating for the rights of animals, um, whether it be trying to protect ancient rainforests, whether it be trying to design more just economic structures, like whatever it is that we can do that can make the world a little bit less um, difficult for others, I think is something worthy of the time that I have here. That's beautiful. And um, I've also often thought for myself that it's almost like this karmic balancing that needs to happen, you know. Um, I don't know if it's, um, <laughs> what's that physical law where something has goes from highest concentration to lowest concentration? Or it's almost like the inverse, you know, when the, or maybe it is, you know, highest accumulation of wealth. There's like a natural flow that we have a responsibility and not just that, like an opportunity. I think this is what really inspires me about social change and activism. It's, it's an opportunity to use my, my life as a tool, you know, and, and everything that comes with the package of just being me, you know. So when you talk about um, perhaps making things better for others and removing discomfort, it kind of segues into something I was thinking about to perhaps speak about a little bit later, but I'll get to it now. Um, in some ways not perhaps we do need to talk about new kind so you are the founding father <laughs> not to be too verbose about it um, but you're the founding father of or the founder of the new kind movement and again I think something that really inspired me about new kind is that it seems to get it right in terms of social change because it puts the emphasis on what is internal um, as the absolute foundation, platform, you know, personal empowerment is essential for people, for, for any activism, um, for any change to happen externally. Can you speak a bit more on your thoughts about that and um, perhaps even what led you to that awareness? Um, I think the, the seeds of that awareness were laid in my mind at a very young age, um, being raised as a Baha'i um, we're taught at a young age that service was you know, was a very crucial part of, of life and that it was um, one of the key things that we should be placing our attention on and to find a, a form of work um, that can act as service to others. Um, so that was from a very young age. Um, and from there, being around my parents and watching them work, um, I got exposed to a lot of different fields of, of uh, injustice as well as community development. So um, my father worked with indigenous communities, with migrant communities, so did my mother. Um, we worked with youth, um, with mental health projects, arts projects. So I, I got to um, experience a, a wide variety of different um, experiences. And I got to a point in my life in my late 20s when I couldn't make sense of much of the world. And I was upset and I was hurt and I was trying to work out why if people like my parents and millions of others have committed their lives to social change, um, why are we still creating so much trauma and, and conflict uh, on the face of the earth? So while studying my communication for social change masters, um, I decided that I no longer want to work in what I consider to be social work, which is still very important work, but that was seeing to the needs of those who have um, been affected by the system, rather than seeing the actual root causes of 
the issues. So I went on this journey of trying to find the root causes. Like, why do we have domestic violence? Why do men take their lives six times the rate of women? Why are we destroying the planet? Like, what are the underpinning um, motivations of these actions rather than just trying to deal with the symptoms? And that's kind of how my spoken word career began. It was just my internal dialogue being put out onto, onto paper. Um, and I eventually stumbled across the idea that it's not the resource that we're fighting over or you know, the state of the kitchen, um, rather it is um, human behavior that we need to address. Um, the ideas of uh, greed, the ideas of um, self-righteousness, the ideas of um, you know, um, our own needs over others, and that type of behavior is what's causing the injustice in the world. Um, and then through that lens, um, I looked at social change movements um, and looked at what gave them momentum, what caused them to be successful, what caused them to stumble, at what point they stumbled. And just through paying a lot of attention, I um, understood um, some certain parallels between a lot of them. Um, I could see um, certain philosophical or spiritual um, underpinnings um, to all of them. Um, and it wasn't as clear as it, as it is now to me in the beginning, um, but I did understand very early on in the game that there, um, there are root causes and connectors between all of these injustices as well as social change movements. Now it's beginning to become more and more clear to me that um, there is a very strong connection between things like the rights of the animals, as well as our relationship with the environment, as well as the rights of the traditional custodians of the land, as well as the way society, men, have dealt with and suppressed women, um, as well as the way the wealthy have used financial weapons against the impoverished. There's a whole bunch of things there that seem to be disconnected, but actually when you pay really close attention, uh, you understand that um, it is basically an innumerable number of diffractions of the idea of rape culture and overpowering others for our own gain, whether it's through financial weaponry, through physical force, through military might, through simply not asking consent when picking fruit from a tree or ripping up the earth uh, without uh, seeking um, you know, permission from the earth itself. Uh, the idea of we are here as masters of this domain and we can do as we wish um, is a culture that's now been created. So man, woman or child alike, we've all kind of picked up on this culture. And I think that is one of the um, fulcrums on which this whole thing spins on and we need to kind of address that. Thank you. Because it actually, it speaks very much to that the seed of everything is internal. It's the seed um, that we need to change or perhaps plant different seeds. And um, it, again, you've uh, preempted my next question, but <laughs> no, there's always a natural flow, you know, like you set up in your mind, we're going to talk about this, this and this. Um, but then life has its own way of weaving things together quite organically. Um, you just, again, plant the seeds and things grow. Um, but, you know, to honor what you've said, I, I remember... Um, you know, that we actually really started communicating more in the lead up to the New Kind Festival, at which point we were talking about some of the statements that have been written about what is New Kind um, in terms of 
going even beyond consent culture, um, which is one further than consent culture, which is one further than, um, say, addressing rape culture is like a negatively framed um, idea with perhaps no vision on how to go beyond attached to it. Um, it was more around um, this idea of like the inner outer metaphors that we see in life. And this is where I think some of the, you know, the beauty of poetry and, and, you know, metaphor and, you know, allegory and stuff like that can really reveal um, things that are going on on a conceptual level for us. Can, can you share with us perhaps what some of those metaphors are that you're seeing? Yeah? So, um, yeah, I guess there's one part of the original question that I kind of didn't really speak on was the idea of um, self-improvement uh, and self-change um, being a key part of creating social change. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, life, this, uh, the time that we have on this planet, is the process of becoming who we wish to leave as. Um, and I see the world as, as a womb within which we can consciously develop ourselves if we wish, um, certain limbs, um, certain faculties and senses, and if we don't, we can just you know, not choose to do so. Um, so seeing life through that lens, I understand that um, whatever I commit myself to uh, in this time could potentially lead to my spiritual development um, in this space so that when I leave this womb and I'm born into another world, I, am, I have developed the limbs which I will use to navigate the next space within. So that's on a spiritual level. On a social change activism level, um, it comes to authenticity, it comes to integrity, and it comes to being able to actually uh, recognize solutions. So in order for us to be able to authentically speak on you know, saving the ancient rainforests or you know, stopping logging, we need to look at our own paper and, and wood consumption, for example. And an environmental activist who doesn't carry a keep cup or, or their own personal water bottle um, can't speak from a place of, of, of authenticity or integrity. Um, once we move into that space and we find um, what we're passionate about externally and find the contradictions within ourselves internally and address them, then we begin to actually see solutions to external problems that we could not have seen before. Um, so whatever it might be, you know, an animal rights activist must needs be vegan also. Um, an environmentalist should also be considering what their diet um, is impacting the environment. Um, so I think it's part of becoming um, an effective activist is internalizing what you see out there, looking for those contradictions within ourselves, solving them, then becoming a more effective activist, and then seeking other problems to then find within yourself. It's a cycle of self-improvement so that you can find solutions for external problems and backwards and forwards. So I like that you've taken um, a very kind of, I was going to say the word esoteric, but I learned from a student of mine once that the word esoteric is, does not mean what we <laughs> think it means. I won't use that word. Um, but a very kind of conceptual, spiritual principle of the inner-outer interaction and made it kind of practical for how we can change things. But what I also hear you speaking about is the concept of embodiment. You know, we have to really embody what we're talking about. Um, and I've... I think it's actually, to be honest, something of why I avoided activism of any sort, you know, despite my own, you know, tenderness for the world and burning desire to change things and feeling like I wasn't doing anything. I also didn't know how because all the people that I saw who were doing things were doing what I would now describe as um, using 
good causes f as a dumping ground for their anger. Um, and so I resisted, I didn't resist, I just didn't go to protests, I didn't voice anything, and I think somewhere along the way I lost my own voice. Um, but I think really what then drew me to New Kind and what's so powerful about it as a framework is it says, it, you know, it promotes peaceful activism, you know, deal with your stuff. You use the word noble a lot. Does that come out of Baha'i text? Um, probably, yeah. Because I've actually also heard... Yeah, have I created the wherefore dost thou base thyself? Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Because I know one of your, um, your favourite spoken word artists, um, he's also, I don't know if Baha'i, but he's definitely Persian. He's definitely Iranian, yeah. Iranian. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if he's Baha'i or not. Anis Mojgani. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think I've heard him use the word noble right. in various things. So I didn't know if you'd kind of picked it up from a few different sources. Been inspired. Let's go with that. <laughs> Been inspired, definitely. The thing, just a semi-tangential question, um, definitely in keeping, but one theme that um, occurs a lot in both your social commentary and your poetry is uh, this emphasis on, I guess, what could largely be called, you know, the sacred feminine. Um, I wouldn't say worshipping of women, but like a recognition of something that is very pure and powerful in women. And... I don't know, I don't know if it's my own socialization, but I still find it like astounding when a man articulates that with such deep, with such like deep feeling and integrity. Um, I have a few questions around that that I'll kind of just put out there and just let you respond to. So one is, where does this come from for you? Um, and also, why do you, why do you see it as so important that this element, not just, oh, there should be, you know, kind of equal pay, for equal work kind of thing, but why on that deep level do you see um, kind of the honouring of women in society as such a profound part of what you're wanting to articulate for others to pick up? Um, the reason I was born in India was because both of my parents were refugees from Iran to India. The reason why my father was a refugee from Iran to India was because he was imprisoned as a teenager for speaking on the streets on one of the Baha'i principles of the equality of men and women. Um, and this is one of the key themes within Baha'i writings, is that um, humanity has two wings. One is male, one is female, one is masculine, one is feminine. And that in order for humanity, society, to actually be able to fly, uh, both wings must be uh, of equal strength. Um, so that was from the very beginning, before I was even born. It was obviously that influence was there. Um, throughout the years, this idea has further developed into not just society has these two equal wings of masculine and feminine, but rather the individual soul um, does, is, is only has a, like the body has a gender in this space, but the soul is actually genderless. So in order for the soul to re reach full um, self-realized capacity, it must also be able to embody um, all of the traits that we have um, assigned to masculine and all of the traits that we have assigned to feminine. Um, and that is how we reach peace within the individual being. So it's bringing things back to balance for you? Yeah. Yeah, so all of the stuff that's going on between um, what we've called m men and women and now the, you know, all of the, the, the gender-diverse politics as well at the moment is just a way of us understanding that the soul itself is genderless and that we have many, many uh, refract uh, refractions and reflections in different forms, um, just like all of life is reflections of, of the single li life force. Um, all of the different genders um, are also um, just different ways in which we can um, be. It's not to say one um, is more correct than another. Um, there's just different 
options that the soul can choose to embody at any point in time. And I think by extension of that, it just adds to the conversation on the level of we've a lot of the problems that we're trying to fix in the world is by trying to address the physical. Um, we're trying to deal with physical issues without looking, as, as you said, at root cause. And maybe, just putting it out there, maybe it's actually just internal imbalance. That, that's kind of... And maybe even then um, the rape culture that you discuss in terms of you know, wanting to take things that are without consent, maybe it's a, a desperate internal cry to rebalance what is intern, like internally out of balance. Like, I'm just you know, kind, of, kind of shooting ideas here, but maybe we're reaching for things that we know would balance us, you know. Um, <laughs> completely silly thought, but you often find really, really tall men with really, really short women. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows where it goes? So speaking of where things go, I guess that's the, the next question. There is a bonus question coming up. Wait for it. But um, where is Irfan Daliri going? Um, I know you're currently pretty much just kicked off your May speaking tour, which is really exciting because it's the start of something new for you in your career, um, really focusing on sharing your unfazed seminar. So perhaps you'd like to just share with us just in a few sentences what that's about because I know it actually covers a lot um, and what it actually means for you to be doing unfazed to be doing the speaking tour <laughs> it's like tarot cards past present future um, yeah it's pretty cool I, it, I think I've done tours before I've done spoken word tours but it's been quite some time since I've done a speaking tour um, believe it or not my first speaking tour I was actually only 19 um, and I did pretty much every, I did every capital city in Australia um, and, and a few others. What was that tour? It was an inspiration, it was like a motivational, inspirational tour for, <laughs> for Baha'i youth. So I'd go and visit Baha'i communities from Darwin, Alice Springs, Adelaide, Adelaide Perth um, and um, yeah, speak to them on some of the history of the faith and some of the early believers. Hashtag same, same but different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm now 15 years later, I'm, I'm doing a similar sort of thing, but um, yeah, from a very, very different space. Um, so yeah, it's exciting. I get to, you know, yesterday I was in Melbourne, I spoke at um, Fitzroy Town Hall on, you know, the elimination of the extremes of wealth and poverty. Um, tomorrow I go to South Coast Soul Fest to speak to, um, you know, um, people on spirituality and resilience. Um, and then, you know, the week after that I get to go to Renew Fest and speak about sustainability and festival culture. So it's a pretty, um, pretty diverse um, bunch of themes that I get to speak on, but they all do connect back to social change, to whether it's from a spirituality angle or an activism angle or culture angle. Um, and Unfazed itself, because I know you're doing some, I guess, some standalone events, just Unfazed, the seminar, which people can book tickets to come and see. The Sydney show is on the 23rd of May, um, Brisbane 21st, Melbourne 27th, and you can book tickets on Eventbrite or Um Yeah, so... If you can speak more, maybe what, what's unfazed about for you and, again, what you would ha hope people to be able to take away from that and then the rest of your journey for yourself. Yeah, I guess uh, unfazed is where I, could, where I get to do uh, whatever I want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a seminar that I developed um, uh, speaking to resilience and emotional core strength, um, paralleling that to physical core strength and how um, necessary it is to develop that core strength um, so that we can find um, a center of balance through um, trauma and difficulties. Um, it connects to activism and fearlessness 
Um, it connects to um, honesty, integrity, and mental health. Um, so it's a bunch of different themes that I cover. Um, sometimes it's you know two to three hours long. Recently, I've brought it down to a more of a spoken word um, performance kind of format where um, I tie in spoken word pieces throughout it and um, yeah, make it a 90-minute kind of experience of performance philosophy, I guess is, is what I'm calling it. Um, and it's pretty freestyle. So um, I know the themes, I know the, the topics, and I know um, some of the things I'd like to express, but um, every audience brings with it different energy. Uh, every day brings with it different learnings. So every time I do it, um, it's a slightly different experience. Um, I tune into the space, um, and I oftentimes have no idea what I've said or what I've done until I watch the footage back um, the next week. <laughs> I know you're also, um, I'm, I'm still keen to kind of um, wrangle something out of you in terms of what you're imagining for yourself longer term. Um, regardless of the, the contemplations on how things might happen or what kind of practical paths you might take, um, I guess what are you ultimately hoping for for yourself as an individual, maybe your spiritual growth, which is so foundational to your journey, perhaps for the new kind movement or for the people that you're kind of gathering as your tribe along the way, your comrades? Um, I guess one of the things I've learned um, in life is that it almost doesn't matter what you want anymore. Um, we might have dreams and hopes and aspirations and ideas and ideals and all sorts of plans um, and it really doesn't matter what you want. Um, I could not have predicted this 12 months ago. I could not have predicted new kind, you know, 15 months before it. It's just, um, you just do what um, you are drawn to do um, and you have an intention behind um, what you're doing. I have an intention of wanting to create a peaceful, just society um, to um, put an end to conflict, internal and external, um, and bring peace. So that's the intention. How that happens to, to, to come about is, is very largely not up to me. Um, and I might think I have a solution um, and I might butt my head up against a brick wall for a while wondering why the solution is not working until eventually it becomes obvious that, oh, that's not the solution just because I thought of it doesn't mean it's right and I have to let go and do some other thing. So, you know, new kinds of thing that's happening right now and it's, you know, empowering a few hundred people at a time each year um, as an annual gathering. It's also opening up conversations that people um, uh, have not yet had, um, you know, very strongly focus on intersectionality and uh, connecting um, a whole bunch of different diverse social change movements together. Um, now, whether that continues to exist as a festival or it becomes a conference or it becomes an annual rally or, you know, it becomes a school, like, I mean, who knows? Are you trying about. to get me to a protest rally sort of thing now? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, like, I'm just pointing it out that, it, you know, it could be anything. And, um, you know, maybe sometimes uh, when a, a rally has a, um, a clear, concise message um, beyond just expressing frustration, um, then it can be useful, and in those situations, it is important to show solidarity. Um, you know, the Invasion Day rallies are, are, are one that I did attend, um, one of the few that I do attend, because it, it, the message is very clear, it's obvious. You know, it's, this is not a day to celebrate, this is a day to mourn. Um, so those things I will attend. Um, if it's uh, general frustration and anger with 
governance or um, politics, and um, I refuse to generally attend those things. Uh, so yeah, sometimes rallies are important. Um, as for what the future holds for me, um, I'm going to continue um, writing and, and speaking and um, planning new kind. Um, and yeah, just seeing how it pans out. Um, a home eventually would be nice. Um, somewhere <laughs> to grow some food and um, and to be able to um, yeah put my books up in a bookshelf instead of ca carrying them around in a duffel bag would be great. No, I can hear I hear you on that one. Um, so just before we wrap up with your bonus question, I do just want to take a moment to spruik and thank the warehouse Northmead where we're actually recording this. You may have heard some of the beautiful traffic noise outside. <laughs> um, but the warehouse Northmead is actually establishing itself as something of a new kind-esque community centre. They're opening up a vegan cafe downstairs. It's at 23 to 25 Windsor Road, Northmead. And, um, you know, there are stencils of We Are New Kind plastered on the walls. <laughs> but it's a beautiful, rich, very clean and crisp space that for me seems like very fertile fertile ground for a lot of creativity and sparkling new things to come and exist come into existence from this space and the space is available for bookings to use for you know workshops training um everything from yoga classes and drumming through to performance space um recording of podcasts so <laughs> watch this space on that um on that level and you can check them out online just be aware it's spelt warehouse as in where is the house so w-h-e-r-e -E, house um, North Mead. Um, Rafan, thank you for bearing your soul. <laughs> um, last question. Um, you are someone who is very active on your own um, YouTube channel, often liking and posting things of your seminar and also uh, various other bits and pieces. And I noticed that very recently you liked a track by John Lennon John Legend, um, Love Me Now. And something that I really loved about the song and music video together is that it's a seemingly very personal song, but when you watch the clip, um, it's depicted and revealed as something much more universal. And I'm just curious, why? what about it appealed to you? Um, <laughs> this is a bit embarrassing. I actually, I haven't listened to the whole track. It, I was what, listening to another John Legend track and then auto-played to this one and, I, and I'm like, I like the sounds of this track. I didn't have time to listen to the whole track. <laughs> so I like it because that sends it to my liked list and I know it's saved so I can go back and listen to it. So I haven't actually listened to the whole track or watched the video that you're referring to. <laughs> it's on my, my to-watch list. <laughs> All right, beautiful. Thank you. He's an honest man. <laughs> Irfan, we love you dearly. Thank you so much for your time. And we really genuinely look forward to seeing what's coming next in whatever way the universe conspires to help you do the things that you are doing. So blessings on your journey, my friend. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. The experience of my conversation with Irfan indeed reminded me of the softening that occurs when we allow the arts and artists to take us deeper than the surface issues or content of the conversation into a discussion and experience of the truths we all know, yet think we are somehow alone in experiencing. In his seminal work, Harmonies of the World, the famed mathematician and philosopher Johannes Kepler not only used music as a tool for exploring the divinity he saw 
woven into the very fabric of astronomical physics. But he beseeched future musicians too, to judge the thing according to your arts. Essentially, to use their own art, whatever that may be, as a tool to reveal universal truth and even divinity itself within the fabric of the world. I see much similarity between this idea and Irfan's description of the process of mirroring that occurs between one's inner and outer life, and how that mirroring can be used as a tool for social change. On some level, perhaps, it doesn't matter then at the outset what we actually do with our lives, whether we paint or engineer, garden or teach, raise children or do another person's taxes or write poetry. What does matter is how we go about doing the things we choose to do, the extent to which we consider and meticulously examine the details of our lives for the dissonances it may reveal occurring within our inner world, and to then adjust them internally so we experience greater stillness and ease within, and then to realign our practical life and behaviour such that it reflects the deeper experience of peace and, to quote Irfan, innate nobility that we all carry. Peace and the process of decreasing expressions of anger and violence in the world around us, the message seems to be, comes first and foremost from being at ease and at peace with ourselves. World transformation through self-transformation. One guest recently described Ufan's performance philosophy seminar as a masterpiece of love. But it is that internal journey, as a prime enabler of wider social change, that is the clear message, intention, and personal process underlying everything Irfan Deliri does as an artist, and simply as a human being, doing all he can to leave lasting positive change in his wake. A man truly using his art as a tool of social change. May we all make our own lives as valuable as a diamond in much the same way. I'm Hannah Weiner, and you've been listening to Artists of Change for Yoke Magazine.